on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Australia, Sally, is uh, not the same country it was over a year ago, we know that, and the economy is one of those things that's constantly changing. A book has just been released by one of Australia's great thinkers and great economists. Professor Ross Garno's new book is called Reset, Restoring Australia After the Pandemic Recession, and the challenges that uh, have uh, come to the fore during the pandemic have also maybe, depending on your mindset opened up opportunities for Australia to be a different and better country. And Professor Garno joins us now in the On The Job studio for a conversation about these things. Ross, welcome. How are you? Francis and Sally, yeah, very good to be here. So, Professor Garno, the first thing we like to do on the podcast is ask the vital question. What was your first job and what was the worst job you've ever done? Well, uh, a few small first jobs selling ice creams at the Commonwealth Games in Perth in uh, 1962 and uh, uh, working in uh, school holidays as a storeman's assistant. Uh, But the first real job is university vacations. I was at the ANU in Canberra, used to hitchhike with a couple of mates up to uh, Gladstone in uh, Queensland to clear mangrove swamps. And you'd have a machete in hand. A lot of our gang were uh, from the sugar industry, your sugar cutters. They were better at it to start with, but we caught up. As you cut one branch of mangrove, uh, uh, then you put your foot on that in big boots uh, and lent over and cut the next one. Uh, teeming with uh, sand flies, every now and again you'd fall into the mud and then the sand flies would have somewhere to, oh. to cuddle up to you. Uh, <laughs> good pay. That they were days of full employment where, uh, you, you, where you got paid properly and uh, you, you got work pretty easily. If you look at physical conditions, that was probably also my worst job, but actually it was a great time uh, getting to know those blokes uh, who were used to uh, working in pretty tough conditions and uh, taught me to be uh, less fussy about which of the Queensland beers I drank. <laughs> How fantastic. Okay, and, and what was your worst job, or is, are you counting that one? Well, uh, to be honest, I've done lots of things in my life and I can't actually think of a job that uh, I, I didn't actually quite, quite like when you look at the whole context, the people you work with, the people you got to know, uh, things you learnt from it. Probably the shittiest job was that first one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's very diplomatic of you. It sounds like an absolute riot up there. It sounds awesome. (laughs) Just how much has Australia changed, do you reckon, in the 12 months since the pandemic struck, particularly when it comes to the economy? Well, uh, we'll have to wait and see. I hope conditions have been created where we can change a lot because I've got one chapter uh, in the book called... uh, Wrong way, don't go back about how things weren't satisfactory in the seven years before the pandemic. We had uh, high unemployment right through that time, five point something, which people came to accept as being as low as you can get. Well, it's not. America got down to three and a half percent during that period. Even some of the Australian states, New South Wales and Victoria, hit four percent for a while. Uh, We were the country as a whole, four percent before the GFC but we came just to accept that that, uh, miserably high uh, unemployment and underemployment increased enormously. You you counted as employed by the ABS uh, if you uh, worked an hour in the week before the survey. Well, the number of hours that people worked was falling further and further behind the number they liked to work. So underemployment grew. We had stagnant average, uh, that's per person, uh, real household income through the seven years before the pandemic. We don't want to go back there. We, we can do better. We have to do better. And I think we can do better if we uh, 
use the uh, pause that's been created in business as usual by COVID to reset our directions? So obviously Morrison and his mob point to the pandemic and the, the subsequent lockdowns and say, oh, well, this is why unemployment is high, this is why the economy is in the shape it is. But you just mentioned a seven-year period. What were some of the things going wrong over those seven years that we could look to fix? The, the biggest ones should be easy to fix. The, the biggest one was monetary policy, uh, where we ran, ran a tighter monetary policy, higher interest rates than the rest of the developed world when our economy wasn't stronger than the rest of the world. That kept the exchange rate higher than it would have been. That created a big problem for our trade-exposed industries. Uh, they were less competitive. The trade-exposed industries had come under great pressure d- during what I call the China resources boom from 2002 to uh, 2012. The exchange rate went sky high. That cleaned out a lot of the metals processing. For example, uh, at the Point Henry uh, aluminium smelter down near Geelong, uh, you used to have a number of fabricating industries uh, making products that went into the supermarkets, aluminium foil and so on. Well, that all disappeared. Uh, we lost our car industry uh, during that period when the exchange rate was about a dollar to the dollar. And uh, I remember a conversation, I recall it in the book, with the chief executive of the global uh, operations of uh, Toyota at the time. He said oh, at an exchange rate of uh, 80 cents, uh, our plant in Altona would be a competitive plant, but at a dollar uh, it's not. And the Commonwealth government's forcing me to make a decision on the future when the, when the exchange rate is a dollar. So it was hard during the China resources boom. We made mistakes in the way we ran fiscal and monetary policy then to let the exchange rate go too high, but we didn't correct them. Uh, in much more difficult circumstances after that. And uh, that's why unemployment stayed high in Australia and came down quite rapidly in other developed countries, including the United States. Lots of other things uh, could be improved upon, but I think that monetary policy mistake was the biggest one. So for the non-professors among us, (laughs) when you say monetary policy, you've just referred to interest rates, exchange rates. For the people at home listening who are like, Well, I know what money is and I know what policy is. What are the levers you're talking about here? Well, the the Reserve Bank was set up as a separate institution away from the Treasury and away from the banking system, away from the commercial banks uh, back in several stages, but back in the days of, first of all, the Chifley government, then the Menzies government. And it was set up as a a statutory corporation with with some powers of its own. It gained greater independence in the 1990s. It's responsible for the amount of money in the economy, uh, the money supply, and uh, through that mechanism it's responsible for interest rates. Uh, And uh, it can raise interest rates by withdrawing money from the economy. It can do that by uh, selling bonds, and that soaks up money, or it can buy bonds and put cash back into the economy, and that uh, can raise or lower the the interest rate. That's the most important thing that it does, the responsibility for the money supply and interest rates. But it's the relationship between interest rates uh, and the government budget together determine the exchange rate in a floating economy. And for any setting of the budget, uh, if you've got looser monetary policy, lower interest rates, more money in circulation, uh, then you'll you'll have uh, a lower exchange rate. If you've got less money in circulation, higher interest rates, you'll have a higher ex- exchange rate. Money will we wanted to come in uh, from overseas to take advantage of the high interest rates that will uh, push up the exchange rate. So uh, today we draw a distinction between fiscal policy run by the Treasury, 
uh, under the control of the Treasurer. And, the and that's like cuts here, uh, funding there. That, that's taxes and government expenditure. Mm-hmm. And then monetary policy, the amount of money in circulation, interest rates, which is the Reserve Bank. In principle, it's really all the government sector. The Reserve Bank is part of the government, but we've become uh, accustomed to thinking of that as a separate arm of government. You talk about monetary policy, and without being too eggheady, but I, I'm fascinated by the idea of modern monetary theory, the idea that there's a different way to approach how much money should be in the economy. And that you, basically, you shouldn't be afraid to keep spending infinitely because there is an influence, infinite supply of money. What's your feeling on modern monetary theory? The bits that are right are not very modern. John Maynard Keynes, in his book, Treatise on Money in the 1920s and the general theory of employment, interest and money in the 1930s, uh, said that if you've got high unemployment, you should get rid of it by uh, debt finance government spending. So spend away and uh, get people back in jobs. And and have the Reserve Bank funded by uh, lending to the What a wise man. I've always been a bit of a Keynes fan. But you can't do it. You use the word infinitely. No, Francis, you can't do it infinitely. (laughs) Uh, And uh, you do have to be mindful of uh, how you get out of that situation. And you've got to have your eye on what you do when you get full employment. Uh, You've got to watch because uh, you have to see how the economy is performing at that time. The circumstances may exist where you have to pull back on demand to avoid runaway inflation, accelerating inflation. Then you've got to be ready to put taxes up or to raise monetary policy. If you do it all by putting interest rates up and not putting taxes up when you get to full employment, uh, then you'll jack up the exchange rate and create a problem for your uh, trade-exposed industries, for the, for the car industry when we used to have it, and uh, for the new industries based on renewable energy that we can have as export industries in future. And you don't want to create a problem for those industries just by jacking up interest rates and the exchange rate. There should be a balance when you get back to full employment. So it's all the juggle, taxes. isn't it? It's a, You've got to juggle all these competing interests and find the balance. That's right. That's what it is, and that's what economic policy is about. And one of the problems of Australia, and for that matter of the English-speaking Uh, capitalist democracies in the last generation is we lost that balance a bit uh, and uh, didn't give enough emphasis to full employment, uh, didn't give enough emphasis to uh, equity, didn't give enough emphasis in Australia in the last decade to uh, what's necessary for prosperity in the uh, trade-exposed industries. You need a balance between expansion of employment run by, by government expenditure and and increase in employment from uh, the export industries, the trade-exposed industries. In that, getting the balance right makes uh, full employment and rising incomes sustainable. Mm. And I suppose just thinking on export industries and our biggest trading partner at the moment, China, the tariffs and the punitive measures from China toward Australia, that seems to be a reaction to sort of like domestic politics and policy rather than something specifically like one of these economic levers you're talking about. How do you see that playing out? Uh, That's one of what I say in the book is three big headwinds for our export industries at the moment. One headwind is that the rest of the world, every other developed country except Australia, is committed now to zero emissions by 2050. And China's committed to zero emissions by 2060. Now our big coal markets, the three of the big four, are China, Japan, Korea. They're they're all committed to zero emissions. They'll be reducing their coal imports. And I don't think India will be very far behind. uh, So our biggest cash cow is disappearing over the horizon. That's 22% of our exports, coal and LNG. And and yes, over the horizon, it won't happen overnight, but there'll be decline over 30 years. 
uh, and there won't be much left of those exports in 30 years. That's 22% of our exports. And then there's a big hunk of our exports uh, that was tradable services, uh, exports of services. Most dynamic of those and the biggest of them on the eve of the pandemic was uh, export of education from our universities. And uh, our universities have been crippled by the, the COVID because fee-paying students weren't able to come in and that's going to have a bigger effect this year than last and the year after that than this because uh, some students stay engaged uh, on Zoom and so on while they complete their courses but new ones uh, don't enrol. But the universities were excluded from JobKeeper even though they had this huge hit to revenue. Other service industries that were hit by their uh, some big customers not being able to come in uh, were given higher priority, really high priority one was casinos and uh, they received huge amounts think about a quarter of a billion dollars just for Crown Casino, uh, whereas the universities got nothing. So universities have been crippled financially so that even if you've got a restoration of normal international travel, travel, they won't be in the financial position. They've cut a lot of their staff. Those that are left are working under much worse conditions, uh, heavier teaching loads. So that will affect quality of both teaching and research. Uh, I fear that our rankings in global rankings of universities will decline, China's will rise, that will make us less competitive. So, so I fear that export of education services is another headwind. We could fix it, of course, but that would require government to give similar priority to universities as to casinos, and there's no sign that, <laughs> no sign that the government sees universities uh, as a high-priority activity. And then the third big um, headwind is the one that Sally's mentioned, uh, relations with China. And uh, China will stay our biggest uh, trading partner despite that. Well, in 2019, before the pandemic, uh, China was as big an export market as our next nine, as the second through to ten uh, export markets. And if you count Hong Kong as part of China, then, then China's as big as the next 11 export markets. So it can fall a lot and still be by far our biggest export market. So that's a big headwind. And when I uh, looked at all that, and, and knowing that you have to have quite strong growth of investment and uh, production in your export industries if full employment and rising incomes is going to be sustainable, looking at those headwinds, you think, well, that's going to be hard, perhaps impossible, until you look at the new opportunities. Well, uh, what are those new opportunities that you see there that might actually deliver what we're interested in, which is secure work, well-paying work, work that people can build a future on. Of course, it being uh, the Australian Unions podcast, we want to see unionised jobs where people feel like they've got a stake in where they work and they're not just in insecure jobs where they don't have any entitlements. Is that still possible? Uh, yes, I th- it is. And it's possible making by making use of our low-carbon opportunity. And now, with these headwinds I've talked about, I'd say it's the only path to full employment. So we've got no choice. Well, we've got a choice. We can choose return to what I call the dog days uh, of uh, high unemployment, rising underemployment, stagnant and falling wages. We've got a choice between that and what I call restoration of Australia, full employment and rising incomes. But we won't have full employment and rising incomes without grasping the low-carbon opportunity. And that opportunity is there for two reasons, some domestic, some external. The domestic reasons is that We've got uh, the developed world's best combinations of renewable energy, solar and wind resources, so that if we don't muck it up, uh, we've got the Western world's lowest cost uh, energy. Uh, And that's the basis of a whole lot of manufacturing and uh, processing industries. We had a lot of those industries in the past, and we've still got some. We used to process a fair bit of our own uh, minerals. Uh, Well, we still do process most of our lead, zinc, 
uh, silver in uh, Port Pirie, Bell Bay, uh, Townsville. We process some of our nickel, some of our copper. We're by far the world's biggest exporter of uh, iron ore. About 40% of the world's iron ore. Uh, China produces half the world's steel. They get 60% of their iron ore from us. Aluminium, we're by far the world's biggest exporter of aluminium ore, uh, either as bauxite or uh, as uh, uh, alumina. Most of it's exported either as bauxite, the raw material, or semi-processed as alumina. We turn some of it into aluminium in uh, Portland, Newcastle and Gladstone and Bell Bay. In the zero emissions world economy, the world will need to produce uh, aluminium, iron, copper, lead, zinc... And new industries for the low-carbon economy, like uh, lithium, a lot more tantalum, a lot more silicon, we need to produce this with zero emissions. And that requires huge amounts of energy, and it's going to be much cheaper to do that in Australia than in other countries. Um, other countries won't be able to compete with us on the cost of renewable energy. Uh, and whereas with coal, we've got the world's richest metallurgical coal deposits in Queensland and New South Wales, but when we export that to Kobe in uh, Japan or Shanghai in China, it's actually a little bit cheaper there than it is in Wyala. <laughs> uh, and so uh, uh, that gives us no advantage. But in the zero emissions world economy, you can't just ship our renewable energy in the same way. It's enormously expensive. You can do it, and we will do it, and that'll be a big industry. But to get Australian... Uh, renewable energy to Singapore, you you have to build an underwater uh, submarine transmission cable, very, uh, very expensive. It will be done, but it'll be expensive at the other end. Or you can turn the uh, renewable energy into hydrogen. Well, you lose 40% of the energy in hydrogen just in, t- in liquefying it. You have to make hydrogen much cooler to liquefy it than you do uh, methane, natural gas. So you use much more of the energy in liquefying it. And uh, and then it's very hard to transport. You can transport it by ship, but you need special materials. Hydrogen's the smallest molecule. It seeps out between the molecules of steel. So you need special materials, uh, special strong containers, carbon fibre, very thick, specially engineered. So it's going to be more than twice as expensive to use the hydrogen in Japan or China or Korea than to use it here in Australia. So this becomes a natural place to turn Australian iron ore into metal. Then why aren't we doing it now? Uh, Well, mainly because uh, it takes a while for uh, our community and our leaders to uh, understand reality. They're a bit quicker in other developed countries. Why are we so slow? Well, we've got some big disadvantages. Uh, I've got a chapter in the book called The Tree of Knowledge named after the tree of knowledge under which the Labour Party was formed in Bark Alden in 1891. The tree of knowledge in which I say that in a democracy things don't work well unless you get broadly shared knowledge. And in the capitalist democracies there's a problem of broad sharing of knowledge in the modern era with fake news and distortion through the media. Uh, and a special problem in the big English-speaking countries in, and worse in US and Australia, the dominance of News Corp, which does uh, run campaigns of disinformation on on this question of the carbon uh, economy and the opportunities for Australia. And in Australia, uh, the political process has been dominated by uh, big coal interests, uh, and that's uh, distorted the discussion. Now, we're a democracy, so we can overcome all of that, but it takes time. And the things I've been writing and talking about are part of the process of <laughs> 
people understanding that their true interests are not in following uh, Clive Palmer and Gina Reinhardt and Rupert Murdoch. Their the true interests of Australians is in uh, using our resources to uh, build these new competitive industries. I didn't get a chance to talk about the second reason why the opportunity is so big, and that's what's happening overseas. It wouldn't be so e easy for us to export zero emissions uh, aluminium or iron metal or silicon or lithium uh, if the rest of the world wasn't going through a carbon transition. And, and you could have a few doubts about that a few years ago, especially when Trump was president of the United States. But, but now every other developed country is committed to zero emissions by 2050. And so they're looking for ways of reducing their own emissions. And the cheapest way for the Japanese steel industry or the Korean steel industry or the German steel industry to get lower emissions is to import uh, zero emissions iron from Australia. They'll still make the Mercedes-Benzes and uh, do the downstream processing. But it'll be very expensive for them to make uh, zero emissions iron to put into the process. And the fact that other countries are committed to zero emissions, that's the other half of our opportunity. And the, the one that's locked that in is Biden defeating Trump in the United States. While Trump was there, there was uncertainty about the direction of the world. There's not much uncertainty now. Just to finish, are you optimistic that... Australia can play catch up with the rest of the world, which is decided and is committed now to a zero emissions path. How long have we got before it's too late for Australia to be to take full advantage of the reset that you write about in this book, of the opportunities that should be there for Australia to have a renaissance in a zero emissions economy? Well, it's never too late. Uh, better late than never, as they're saying. But uh, uh, the sooner we do it, the better it'll be. You know, Germany now. Uh, Norway now, other Scandinavian countries now, France now are supporting the growth of very expensive zero-emissions iron-making. And if they get too far along that track, they'll get used to doing it themselves. And even though it's expensive, then you'll have vested interest saying, well, we should do it, do it all here. So if we were in on the ground floor, it would be much easier. Am I optimistic? Well, in the book, I, s I say that in the period ahead, in the next year or so, we'll be making the choice whether we go back to the dog days or whether we uh, go to uh, the restoration of Australia. The dog days mean continuation of high unemployment, stagnant or declining wages. The uh, restoration of Australia means full employment and rising incomes. That's our choice from the uh, budget that came down in October last year. Australia hasn't made the choice yet. And there, there's some interest in Australia that actually benefit from stagnation of wages and, and so on. And some, some people do very well in that, that world. And uh, so you can't say that 100% of Australians will be on board, but there's no doubt that where a majority of Australians' interests are, so we've got to make our democracy work so that those interests actually drive our political decisions. Professor Roscano, thank you very much for giving us your insight on the job. Very good to be on the job, Francis Sally. <laughs> Professor Ross Gunner, whose book is called Reset, Restoring Australia After the Pandemic Recession. Now, Sal, thanks for coming in today. We look forward to catching up again next week. Remind people where they can find you on the socials. Uh, you can look up my name on Twitter or Instagram, and you are Saint Frankly I know. on Twitter. Thank you, Sal. We'll catch you next week. Bye.